Welcome to a special archive edition of Racer X Readout. My name is Brett Smith from We Went Fast, and I'm going to narrate a gem of a story that Eric Johnson wrote back in 1998. Now, I promised you that my voice will not sound like this when I read you the article. I recorded that earlier before I ended up with this bout of laryngitis, so just stick with me through this brief introduction. Titled When We Were Kings, this article ran on the September-October 1998 issue of Racer X Illustrated. Yes, 1998, when Racer X was in its first year as a full-color glossy, and only printing six times a year. What's the hook in 2021? This month marks the 40th anniversary of Team USA's victories at the 1981 Trophy and Motocross Designations, the greatest upset wins in motocross history. It's a fabulous tale about a group of young racers who overcame blatant derision and ridicule and shocked the world. I won't give away too much of the story, but in 1981, for the third year in a row, the AMA wasn't even going to send a team. Then a magazine editor named Dick Miller stepped in to take over the organizing efforts and whipped up interest. The man literally held bake sale style events to raise money. Speaking of money, get your RacerX subscription for $30 at racerxonline.com slash subscribe. A lot has changed since 1998. Now you get 12 issues per year and you get it in digital and print format. Only want digital? That's just 15 bucks. Only $1.25 an issue if you're counting your pennies as closely as Jason Wygant does. RacerXonline.com slash subscribe. And if you find this story inspiring, you'll love the new print available at WeWentFast.com slash shop. The newest art collaboration between Tim Glasspool and WeWentFast pays homage to the 1981 Team USA Quartet, who brought home America's first victory at the trophy in motocross designations. It's available at WeWentFast.com dot com slash shop lastly shout out to todd huffman of the motocross files and the john penton story he's working on a documentary about team usa 1981 and you'll find more info about that soon on racerxonline.com when we were kings team usa's first victory at the motocross does nations by eric johnson read for you by brett smith under the bright autumn Midwest sun, a red, white, and blue Datsun pickup truck idled out of the pit area and onto the mid-Ohio motocross track. Sitting in the back, balancing precariously on the sides, were four young Honda riders who waved and smiled at the cheering crowd. To everyone present, they were heroes. Perhaps the biggest heroes American motocross had ever created. The date was September 20th, 1981, and the event was the opening round of the long-forgotten Trans-USA Series. The four riders in the back of that truck were Johnny O'Mara, Danny Laporte, Chuck Sun, and Donnie Hansen. This young quartet had just returned from Europe, where in the span of two glorious weeks, they pulled off the greatest upsets in the 50-year history of our sport. As Team USA, they had won the trophy and motocross designations for the first time ever, marking the proudest moments in the short, happy life of American motocross. It was a fairy tale like story that Walt Disney could not have dreamed up, filled with emotional ups and downs, good guys and bad guys, deep skepticism, and a group of unassuming underdogs who overcame the odds and made themselves folk heroes in American motocross history. Rumblings During the late 1970s and early 1980s, the United States was considered nothing more than a quirky, second-rate motocross power. Despite strong performances in a number of Trans-AMA events, an annual series held during the autumn months which brought the best Europeans to this country for a racing vacation, and a handful of Grand Prix wins by American riders, the rest of the world just didn't take the Yanks seriously. The ruling European establishment felt that the American infatuation with Supercross was laughable. Stadium racing at the time was thought of as 
nothing more than a whacked-out novelty by the rest of the world. They viewed American riders as little more than hyperactive renegades. Adding to the Europeans' aren't those ignorant Americans charming attitude was the fact that the U.S. often couldn't get it together enough to send a team to the annual Motocross and Trophy des Nations events. Held every September since 1947, the two Des Nations events were universally thought of as the Olympics of motocross, where countries matched up against the rest of the world and team scores were favored over individual honors. The events involved countries sending four-man teams made up of riders of their choice to do battle one week on 250s, trophy, and the next week on 500s, motocross. Editor's Note in 1985, the sanctioning body consolidated the two events into one race for three riders and called it the Motocross Does Nations. So every fall, the world looked to Europe. Everyone, except for America, that is. Through a lack of interest or motivation, the U.S. didn't even bother sending a team overseas in 1979 or 1980 after several lackluster efforts in the mid-1970s. With that kind of attitude, how could our riders and the AMA expect to be taken seriously? No American had ever won a World Motocross title, and Team USA had never even come close to winning a Des Nations race. In early 1981, a man named Dick Miller, then the editor of Motocross Action, was concerned about America's reputation in the global motocross community. Heavily involved in motocross since its conception here in 1967, Miller was proud of how the sport had grown in the States and wanted our bright corner of the world to be taken seriously. In order for that to happen, something drastic needed to be done about our general apathy toward the designations. It all started that spring with a phone call to Mike Dupree of the AMA, explains Miller, who is no longer with the magazine from his home in the San Fernando Valley. He told me that they weren't sending a team. It was pretty heavy conversation, and it didn't get any better when he said, it's a stupid race anyway, we have never done any good over there, so why waste the money? I replied right back, if you just did it right, we would do well. Like many of my conversations with the AMA back then, it got pretty hostile. My attitude relates back to my memories of the early days of motocross here before 1970 back when I was very involved. I remember how the AMA didn't want anything to do with this new type of motorcycle racing called motocross. That was until they saw Edison die, the promoter of the Interam series filling his rental car's trunk with money at his races. Then they were interested. Anyway, my conversation with Dupree fell apart to the point where he finally said to me, if you think you can do better, then why don't you send a team? Are you serious? I asked. After a short pause, he said, yes. I'm sure he expected me to back down, but I said I would do it and then hung up the phone. I've done a lot of stupid things like that in my life, Miller said. As the old adage goes, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. Whether he wanted the responsibility or not, Miller was tapped as the key organizer for Team USA and the 1981 MX and Trophy Des Nations effort. Salvation Army Miller first called Tur Cohen of Belray Lubricants in Belgium, which happened to be the country in which the trophy race would be held, to ask what kind of money he needed to put a team together. Cohen told him that he could help out a little with hotels, vans, and mechanical help, but it would still take a minimum of $20,000 to do the race. 40000 to do it right. I went to the publisher of my magazine at the time, a man named Bill Golden, Miller said, and told him what was going on. He asked me if it would cost him anything, and I said no, so he said he had no problem with what I was doing. I knew right away that we needed money, so I had an artist do a t-shirt and had my girlfriend model it. Cycle News then joined the cause by donating free ads for the t-shirt sales. I had also solicited help from Larry Myers, who at the time worked for John Penton at High Point Racing in Ohio. 
Larry committed High Point to processing the t-shirt orders and collecting the money. Dirt shirts gave us printed shirts at cost, but we had to buy them before we could sell them, and High Point put up the start money. I was at most of the major outdoor events during the year, Miller continues. We would hold raffles after the races to raise money for Team USA. The grassroots fan support was truly great, and many of the accessory companies helped by donating products for the raffles. JT Racing, Fox, and others stuffed their shipping orders with flyers promoting the t-shirts, and the riders would give us gear to raffle off after the races. Everyone got involved. Encouraged by the support of the aftermarket industry and the thousands of enthusiasts who either mailed in money to buy t-shirts or held up their hands at auctions, Miller went looking for more. He even cashed in favors with friends at the big four Japanese manufacturers. At Daytona, I was having a conversation with Rom Laville, who had moved from Suzuki to Kawasaki in their PR departments, explains Miller. Rom, who would later die in a street bike accident, loved motocross. After hearing my story, he took me to his boss, Mike Vaughn, and told him that I wanted a $5,000 donation with no strings attached to support Team USA. After a little bit of convincing, Mike gave the okay, possibly because Kawasaki had the least chance of having a rider being picked for the team. But because of Kawasaki's initial commitment, it was easy for me to convince Suzuki's Gene Trobau, Yamaha's Merle Karst, and finally Honda's Bill Pulskamp to match the donation. One person who watched the American operation rapidly gain momentum was J.J. Hanfield of Bell Ray Lubricants of America. From the beginning, it was primarily Miller and Myers making it all happen, says Hanfield from his Bell Ray office in New Jersey. At the time, Larry was announcing all of the outdoor nationals and most of the supercross races and helped promote the effort the whole time. Miller wrote several pieces in his magazine to help generate interest. The two of them, and a host of other volunteers, worked hard to collect money and generate fan support so that America could send a first-rate team. They created a lot of publicity for the event, and you could begin to see everyone get excited. As the bake sale-style funding for the team began to fill up the piggy bank, Miller and his colleagues turned their attention to the operation issues regarding the team. The Man one of the big challenges was to find a team manager, says Miller. After thinking about it, I called Roger DeCoster and told him what was going on. Roger had recently retired from the 500 Grand Prix circuit, and I believe he was only a year off from actually being on the Belgian team. He had started working as Honda's worldwide motocross consultant. I said to him, I'd like you to be the team manager. And I know it might be difficult for you to go up against your own country, but think about it. He said he would get back with me, but he thought he might want to do it. Truth be told, at that point in time, DeCoster had his hands full. Dispatched to the United States by his Honda racing bosses in Japan, the five-time world champion arrived alongside Dave Arnold, whom had wrenched for the man in his last season as a rider. Keen to sort out American Honda's somewhat hapless race effort, Chuck Sun's 500cc national champion was Honda's lone shining moment in 1980, they put their heads together and sketched out a plan for the big red machine. During my last year as a rider, I asked for Dave Arnold to be my mechanic, remembers DeCoster, while sipping a bottle of red striped beer in his Palos Verdes, California living room. I had seen Dave around a lot, and talked to him while he was the mechanic for Marty Smith. After I retired in 1981, both Dave and I came back to America. I had a three-year contract with Honda, but decided that 1980 would be my last as a rider. So I was an advisor for Honda, and Dave was the team manager. As the season rolled on into the summer months, things were going well for Team USA. Through the generosity and goodwill of the industry and fans, it became clear that the effort would be comfortably underwritten. The time had come to choose the team. At this point, the shady backroom politics of motocross entered the equation for the first time.
It was obvious who the best riders for the team were, and midway through the season, I asked each one of them to tell me if they would accept an invitation if they were chosen, explains Miller. I told them that if they didn't want to go, it was okay, but I wanted to know their answer before the team was picked. Only one rider said no, and he would not have been the top pick anyway. Everyone else said yes. Strange days. However, when it came time to settle on the team, two of the riders who had been asked, Yamaha legend Bob Hanna and Suzuki rider Mark Barnett, said no. An expatriate 500cc world championship contender Brad Lackey, a likely candidate had he been interested, wasn't even on the radar screen. They had lied to me for whatever reason, says Dick Miller. Their team managers lied for them too and told me that they couldn't let them be on the team. I was pissed. So much so, in fact, that the team managers didn't want to take the heat from me anymore and told me, unofficially, that the riders were free to be on the team, but they didn't really want to go, and they didn't want anyone to know about it. After fighting the good fight all spring and summer, Miller and the other men involved in breathing life into Team USA were left holding the bag. Two of the country's best riders backed out, Myers, who hovered right on the edge of the team selection process, watched the cloak-and-dagger antics of more of the riders as they maneuvered themselves out of their previous commitments. It was like, oh no, we have a team without any riders, laughs Myers from the pit area of the Laguna Seca World Superbike Race, where he was working as a trackside announcer. That's where it got kind of fishy. Miller called me up one day and said, well, I lose. Kent Howerton doesn't want to go, Hannah won't go, Barnett says, well, I want to go, but if they aren't going, I'm not going. A few others said the same thing, so they were all passing the buck back and forth. But they just didn't want to go, Miller says. Interestingly, it later came to light that a handful of these riders were never even approached about joining the team. The truth of the matter is, I was never even approached about becoming a member of the team, claimed six-time national champion Brock Glover. For one reason or another, the factories didn't want us to go to those races. A few years earlier, Hannah got beat by Heike Mikola at the 78 designations. After that race, the factory stopped paying attention. It was like the World Cup in soccer this year. No one here in America cared. But back in 1981, no one even talked to me. I was the 500 national champion, and I would have loved to have gone. Adds Mike Bell, who was second in the 500cc national series and the runner-up to Barnett in the Supercross series. The international scene was not cool for us at the time, Bell says. I was never invited and was never even a consideration. Kenny Clark, then Yamaha's racing team manager, called the shots, and I was bummed I didn't get to go. At the same time, I didn't think we were as good as the Europeans. I thought guys like Andre Malherbe and Eric Gabors would roost on us. Nonetheless, Miller toiled on through all the factory posturing and meddling before going back to DeCoster one more time for guidance, and the man stepped up. Red, white, and blue. Mostly red. It was Roger DeCoster who got Honda to listen, recalls Myers. And they said they would do it. They would step in and send the riders and pick up the rest of the tab. At this point, Myers is quick to point out credit where credit is due. Miller somehow did all this, Myers says. Just Miller, not the magazine, which by this time had totally disassociated itself with the effort despite all their damn claims to the contrary. Even today, it is abundantly clear that the designations hold a special place in DeCoster's heart. And as he watched the American ship stray from the course back in 1981, he knew it was time to step in and take control of the ship. It started to seem like the U.S. wasn't going to have a team, which I thought was ridiculous, says DeCoster. The AMA and the riders couldn't make up their minds, and Hannah and Barnett in particular didn't want to go. I told all of them that it was crazy if we didn't send a team over. So I went back and said, listen, I'll put a team together. I will send my whole Honda team. I knew there was a chance we might not do that well. But if we did okay, it would be good for the next year. 
DeCoster and Miller then met one last time to make the final decision on who would represent both Honda and Team USA in Europe. According to Miller, two of the original riders picked were from Team Honda anyway, Danny Laporte and Donnie Hansen. With the FIM entry deadline coming up fast, DeCoster and Miller both agreed on Chuck Sun as the third rider, but disagreed on the final spot before settling on young Johnny O'Mara, who Miller had been watching for years on the SoCal circuit as an amateur and pro. Team USA was coming back off the bench and into the big game. 1981 was a building year for Honda, explains Dave Arnold from the Honda Race Shop in Torrance, California. We were sorting the equipment out and developing young riders like O'Mara and Hansen. Then the Team USA thing came up, and it all started to fall into place. It was great at Honda then because there was no one standing over us to say no. Even outside people like John Gregory at JT Racing, who put the uniforms together for the team, stepped in and helped. It was all so neat. You couldn't do that today. All we wanted to do was look good over there. We shipped over four 250s for the trophy race in Belgium and four 500s for the motocross designations in Germany. We also loaded up a number of huge LR3 airline crates with parts and equipment and headed for Europe. The actual team would follow on a date closer to the race. Europe was a different place in the early 1980s. The world hadn't quite come around to that global community thing that present-day politicians and businessmen like to talk about so much. There was still a thing called the Cold War raging, and Western Europe was in a state of transition. Fast food and satellite television were things of the future over there. Even just calling home was a chore. The late-starting Team USA would have its hands full in getting along, as it had in past endeavors to the old world. The Team USA effort was always disorganized, and they would come back disappointed, explains Arnold. Roger Turr and I wanted to take an entirely new approach and looked at it as a big challenge. As we formulated the entire effort, it was a very positive contribution-type atmosphere. We wanted to do it as a united effort. Everybody contributed and worked together, Arnold said. In late August, Team USA boarded the transatlantic jumbo jets headed for Europe. Somewhat surprisingly, Dick Miller, the catalyst of the entire operation, opted to stay back home. As much as I would have liked to have gone, I didn't, says Miller. If I had gone that year, I did not want anyone to wonder if I had used some of the money that had been raised to send our team. However, that same money did send Mike Dupree, and another AMA official to both races. Critical Mass As recently as this summer, the selection of Team USA has been a controversial task. American motocross fans are often up in arms over who gets selected and who doesn't. The process is now done entirely by the AMA. Take Ezra Lusk, for example. Lusk was the runner-up in the AMA 250 Supercross series, Yet he has been the focal point of most of the criticism of Team USA 1998, which also includes Ricky Carmichael and Doug Henry. It's probably because Lusk is on a Honda, and some people just don't like anything that has to do with Honda. Now try to imagine what kind of angry mail the AMA was getting in 1981 when four Red Riders made up the entire team, and only two of them had really done anything at that point. Had the internet been plugged in at that time, Team USA 1981 would have been the subject of more hate mail than Bill Clinton. So when the team left LAX with some controversy swirling around the pits back home, they were still not prepared for the reception they were about to drop in on in Belgium. It wasn't criticism, remembers O'Mara, but more like the cold shoulder. When we first got there, it was a bad sensation because all the people over there were saying, who are these guys, says Johnny O'Mara, now a representative for Oakley and trainer for 1998 Team USA selectee Ricky Carmichael. I was a teenager, and I was excited. I had never been to Europe, and the way I felt going there was not really cocky, but I wanted to have fun. All of us were pretty confident when we went there. 
but we didn't know anything. Danny Laporte, the 1979 500cc national champion, just couldn't get his head wrapped around the controversy that shrouded the team upon arriving in Europe. I can never forget that, says Laporte from his office at FMF in Harbor City, California. No matter what anyone said about our team not being the number one guys in America, I knew they were wrong. I mean, virtually all of us went on to be champions within the next couple of years. The European and, at times, American press made us out to be a B team. But I had already won a national championship and would have won a few others if not for some bad breaks. Adds Chuck's son, there was no pressure for us because we weren't expected to go over and win. We were more of a joke. Four guys from one race team was seen as being a bit ridiculous. We were fueled by the fact that no one expected us to do anything there. The Crest Once in Belgium, the American team set up headquarters in an opulent European hotel. Organized by Belray Chief Cohen, the hotel would provide a perfect backdrop for the events that were about to play out on the Belgian front. At that time, Belray had a big office in a hotel in Antwerp, Belgium, which was great because it was centrally located and not far from either of the races, explains Hanfield. The office was in a hotel called The Crest, and it was a real nice place. We housed the team there and got them the food they wanted and everything because we wanted them to feel very comfortable. Everyone in Europe thought we had sent over a B team, he adds. But I think it was the best thing possible. You had mechanics and riders that had been working together all year and were real comfortable with each other. Everything with the team was the same and they were able to share information. And keeping them together at the crest gave them a great base to work from. The people in the hotel kind of adopted the team. They were very nice and treated us very well. I remember a big sign in front of the hotel that declared, Hotel for the American Motocross and Trophy Does Nations team. It was a big hotel for older businessmen, and it was kind of funny that our young guys were staying there. In fact, one day, Johnny O'Mara was in the lobby kicking his hacky sack around, and the elevator door opened at just the right time, and the sack rolled in it and down the elevator shaft. You could tell right away that he was bummed. Immediately, the front desk called the engineering department, and they went right down there and got his hacky sack for him. Even though they were both born and raised in Southern California, Johnny O'Mara and Donnie Hansen felt comfortable in their funky new surroundings. At that time, Johnny and I were living, training, and riding together, so we were really strong mentally and physically, says Hansen, while taking a break from one of his Colorado-based motocross schools. We approached those races just like we were at a national. And Tur Cohen really helped us by getting American food and things like that. And all the people at the Crest really tried to Americanize everything and make us feel comfortable. Sands of Fate Upon getting the living quarters sorted, the American camp took to testing in the deep sand which is so indigenous to that region of European motocross. The savvy DeCoster and Arnold knew that the bikes needed a specific setup in order to be competitive at Lommel, one of the roughest, most notorious sandbox tracks in the world. As soon as we got there, we did a lot of training and testing in deep sand, explains DeCoster, who was already beginning to take some serious heat from a number of Europeans for helping the Americans. Our guys weren't used to those types of tracks, and the bikes were real sensitive to the conditions but we kept at it and got them working really well. Many remember DeCoster as the greatest 500cc rider ever, but he was also revered in Europe as one of the greatest sandmasters Belgium ever produced. Armed with a lifetime of sand racing knowledge, DeCoster created a testing baseline. The team ran through a litany of setup changes while torture testing on a host of local sand tracks on the border of the Netherlands and Belgium. One test in particular initially had veteran rider Danny Laporte scratching his head. I remember at one point DeCoster said, Okay, who will go out and ride a 45-minute moto, remembers Laporte, the most accomplished sand rider on the team. After a pause, one of us replied, Why? The bikes are ready. And Roger just said, 
You'll see. So we went out and did it. And right before the end, we ran out of gas. Roger knew that was going to happen because when running in the sand, the engine temperatures went way, way up. The Belgian sand gets incredibly rough. It's not like Florida sand. The deeper you went, the wetter the sand became. And it was so amazingly heavy. The sand was really straining the bikes. Despite all of the hard riding, testing, and training, all was not well in Belgium. As race day approached, the American operation was being scoffed at by many high-ranking officials from both the FIM and the event promoter group. Most Europeans knew that the biggest names in American motocross were Hannah, Howerton, Glover, Barnett, and Mike Bell. O'Mara was taken lightly as the upset winner of the muddy mid-Ohio 125cc USGP the previous summer, and the others were second-rate racers in the haughty opinions of doubting Europeans. Undaunted, the team used the snickering and finger-pointing to their advantage. A few days before the race, there was something in the paper over there that had a connection to the race promoter or the Belgian Federation, says Hanfield. One of the Belgian representatives said something to the effect of, This is crazy that America has sent their secondary team over, and what can they do? We caught wind of that right away and rallied around it. There was a lot of crap like that going on, and it actually helped motivate us. I had a lot of friends in Europe then, and it was all very gratifying because all those people thought we were a joke because of these riders, remembers Larry Myers. I had made bets with just about every one of them. If we didn't win, I was going to leave town without paying them because I had made too many bets. We could be heroes. The 1981 Trophy des Nations in Lommel finally started on Saturday with practice sessions and a qualifying race. Well-respected European moto journalist Jack Bernicle was on hand at Lommel that Saturday afternoon, and many images that American race fans have seen over the years came from his camera. Bernicle remembers watching in quiet awe as the Americans took to the deep sand for the first time in their qualifying race. They all looked so very good and stylish, but there was a lot of talk that the Americans would blow out after 20 minutes in that deep sand, explains Bernicle from his home in England. They went out and won the qualifying heat easily, yet the talk became even more pronounced as everyone was convinced that they couldn't keep up the same speed in Sunday's motos. The host nation was the obvious favorite, but in all honesty, Team Belgium wasn't loaded with their best riders either. Multi-time world champions George Jobet and André Malherbe were both hurt, but the fans and team personnel of the motocross power didn't sweat their absence. Belgium was replete with great sand riders at the time. With the exception of the Netherlands, there was no other European nation that could race with the Belgians in such conditions. As the riders slept and the fans partied well into the night, no one could have predicted that the hierarchy of global motocross was about to get blown to bits. The American team lined up in their designated area for the opening ceremonies. They were dressed in brilliant white JT outfits and festooned in yellow camel competition bibs with the American flag and their individual race numbers. Sun was 46, Laporte 47, O'Mara 48, Hansen 49. They walked out before the crowds carrying their blue skunk-striped helmets and stood behind a young Belgian girl who carried a placard that said America with a K. One interesting footnote was the fact that DeCoster did not march out as Team USA's manager. Rather, Bell Ray's J.J. Hanfield went out as the manager of record, saving DeCoster the awkwardness of standing under another nation's flag while in his native Belgium. By this time, the Lommel facility was packed with over 20,000 fans. Blessed with bright and sunny weather, the Olympics of motocross was about to commence. The humble, underappreciated American team was eager to get things rolling so they could kick sand in the faces of all those who had doubted them. After traveling thousands of miles, testing and training for days on end, it was zero hour. One person who picked up on the vibe charging the circuit was Mike Bell, who the night before had taken the measure of several other Des Nations non-entrants at a stadium race in Amsterdam. 
I was at Lomel that morning, recalls Bell, while sitting at his desk at Oakley and Irvine, California. Marty Tripes, Jeff Ward, my mechanic Dave Osterman, and I had rented a car so we could drive over to Lomel. That place was so neat. I remember these old Belgian guys that were wearing suits and ties and walking around the track drinking beer and eating sausage or something. I also remember that track. When we first saw the circuit, it looked like the world's longest and smoothest TT track, but you could see that it was going to get very, very rough. As the opening ceremony hoopla was going on, DeCoster was dealing with another strange situation. As a rider, he had led Team Belgium to victory at the motocross and trophy des nations more times than anyone. Now here he was, back in his home country, doing everything in his power to help another country to victory. A few of his cronies from his racing days made it a point to get a few last-minute digs in. I took some heat right before the race, said DeCoster, but it was from the same people who complain about things all the time anyway. That morning, I wanted to try and get appearance money from the organizers to help cover some of the expenses for getting over there. One of them said to me, Why should we give money to a team who won't do well and is not worth it? Things like that provided us with so much extra motivation. I remember thinking that there was just a really gnarly pack of Belgian sand riders ready to dominate everyone, says Laporte today. Andre Vromans and Harry Everts were the main guys, but the entire Belgium team was just awesome in the sand. It was overwhelming to see all those guys haul ass on that track in practice. I kept thinking, Jesus, this is going to be real tough. I don't know how we're going to do. But Roger was looking at the lap times from the morning practice and he said to us, you guys can do well. You can win this thing. We were a real team at that point, says Laporte, because we were all in it together. The commander was right there with us and we were all very committed to the cause. We were all dressed in white JT gear and had blue helmets and we looked so bitchin', says Laporte. We were like white knights from America in shining armor. The clothes were clean and classic, and there was a great contrast with the red bikes. It was all so bitchin'. I had been to Europe in 1979 where I struggled on the GP circuit, remembers Chuck's son, who entered several 250 GPs for Husqvarna that year. I remembered the Lommel track vividly because it was the training ground for virtually every world champion of that time. There were a couple of brew pubs outside of the circuit, and you would walk in there, and it was a full-on motocross speakeasy. There would be race team managers and racers having a beer. It had been like that around there for decades. So I knew the local guy, Andre Romans of the Belgian team, would do really well. Their whole team was racing in the very best conditions, because it was their home track, son said. Before heading to the staging area for the start, DeCoster briefed his riders on the scoring system of the race. The regulations dictated that each four-man team was to compete aboard a 250cc motorcycle. Furthermore, the top three scores garnered by each team in each moto would be added together. After the two motos of racing, the team with the lowest aggregate score would win the Trophy Des Nations Championship. Apocalypse Now a loud roar went up when the gate thumped into the soft lomal sand and the pack lurched out of the hole. Educated in the hard-knock school of Supercross, the Americans had been trained that the start in any race means everything. So it really should have been no great surprise to see Johnny O'Mara leading the field through the first turn and out onto the washboard sand circuit. Laporte, Hansen, and Son were also right up front at the sharp end of the field. Startled, the Belgian spectators counted off the positions of their riders, Romans, Mark Velkeneers, Eric Gabors, and Harry Everts. Eventually, Vromans, who lived only two miles from the racetrack and was recognized as the world's fastest sand rider at the time, got by O'Mara to take the lead. However, the Americans kept their composure and remained in a flying formation. While I watched, I was just a nervous wreck remembers J.J. Hanfield of the first moto. The race started, and I remember thinking, man, here we go. And then it was like, 
oh my God, they're all right up front. They were outstanding in that deep sand, and that stuff can tire the hell out of you. But they kept scratching and clawing, and we were all cheering them on. I would run up to the fence wearing my jeans and a cowboy hat and scream, Go! 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 Pretty soon, a few of the European fans around me would smile and clap and wave their handkerchiefs for the Americans. The crowd was enormous, and the atmosphere was unreal, Hanfield said. It was like Unadilla in the glory days, but five times over. Vromans, of course, won on the Yamaha 250. But after that, unbelievably, it was O'Mara in second, Laporte in third, and Hansen in fourth. Sun placed a valiant eighth after riding most of the race with a blown shock. Immediately after the second moto, the four riders, DeCoster, Arnold, and the rest of the crew, mechanics Paul Turner, Brian Lunas, Eric Krippa, and Chris Haynes, and trainer Jeff Spencer, headed right back to the pit area where, according to Arnold, we looked at each other and didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Laughs Mike Bell, who had watched the whole thing go down from the sidelines. I have to admit, I was kind of jealous how well they had done. The journalist Jack Bernicle, so long a fixture on the GP scene, remembers the shell-shocked atmosphere that shrouded the circuit at that point. Everyone was bewildered and shocked, recalls the Englishman. If you've ever been amongst Belgian motocross fans, you know that they are furiously supportive of their favorite riders and they couldn't admit to themselves that their guys had just been beaten, and beaten badly. While the Americans were trouncing them during the race, they still thought that their men would win, and they all hung over the ropes, shaking their fists and screaming at their guys to go faster, Bernicle says. The Americans were brilliant. They knew that Romans was the complete sandmaster, so they had said to themselves, we won't worry about him, he can run off and win we'll just concentrate on our own race and beat everyone else. Hanfield, along with thousands of other European spectators, couldn't believe what he had just witnessed. No one was expecting the team to do that well, Hanfield says. I remember walking back to the pits after the first moto and hearing someone say, it's a fluke, it's a fluke, they'll get beat bad in the second moto. It was very intense between motos. All our guys knew where they had to finish in order to win it. We also knew where all the Belgians were in the scoring. I remember Roger telling the guys, you have to do this and finish here. With the exception of Roger, I don't think any of them realized the magnitude of what they were about to pull off. Redux. At the start of Moto2, Romans and Gabors jumped out to a quick lead, while the Americans did not have the same advantageous start as the first time out. They were scattered throughout the field, but they went right to work and began to claw back up to the front. A few laps in, Vromans and Gabors were followed by a relatively unknown Swede named Carlson, then Laporte, then Hansen. When the halfway signal went up, things were looking good for the Yanks as both Gabors and Everts had crashed. Meanwhile, Laporte was up to second and hounding Vromans while O'Mara had kept on the gas to get back up to third after some early problems. Says Hanfield, who watched the whole thing go down, By the midway point, you could see that the Belgian crowd knew it wasn't a fluke. While all of this was going on, DeCoster, in a frenzy to keep track of his team, ended up at odds with a drunk Belgian fan. Roger was trying to stay focused and was walking around tallying points, explains Dave Arnold, who had the man's back. It was all out of control because we knew how big and upset it would be if we won. I mean, we were in a state of shock and disbelief ourselves. At one point, Roger and I walked up a hill and there was a crowd of about 10 people on the other side of the snow fence behind us. We were kneeling down to let the spectators see over top of us. But this drunk guy kept screaming at Roger to get out of his way. Roger was trying to concentrate, but the guy just kept yelling. Finally, Roger got up, walked over, and just smacked him. It was unbelievable, Arnold says. And when the guy found out that it was Roger DeCoster who had slapped him, he thought it was the greatest thing in the world, explains DeCoster of the incident with a laugh. 
We were in the signaling area where we should have been, and he kept yelling, you're in my way. He wouldn't let up, so finally I just punched him and he fell on his back. Back out on the track, when the checkered flag flew over the second moto, it was Romans again with the win, while Laporte was in second, O'Mara third, and Sun a solid sixth. In resounding fashion, the Americans had won the Trophy des Nations and won big. When I rolled off the track after the second moto and into the pits, everyone was either jumping up and down or just dumbfounded, says Laporte of the shocking win. To win that race was the biggest thrill of my life. Winning the 250 World Championship the very next year was kind of anticlimactic because winning the Trophy des Nations was the most shocking upset in motocross history. We won, and nobody could believe it, declares O'Mara. It began a new era in motocross. I think the sport got big in America because of that race. The standards the Americans set were just phenomenal. That race was part of history, and it set a standard that would grow for years. I was so happy they had won, says Hanfield who also likes to add that he was the team manager of record due to Roger DeCoster's situation. Everyone wanted autographs and wanted to get to know the Americans. So many people were so happy and thrilled for the team. I think that was the neatest part about it. When all of the yelling and screaming and crying had stopped, the Americans were ushered up to the podium where, both literally and figuratively, they looked down on the entire motocross world. By that point in time, all the foolish talk of second-rate B-teams had stopped. Sun, O'Mara, Hanson, and Laporte took in all the glory that they had fought so very hard and valiantly for. They gave us these big gold wreaths and put us up on the podium, and there were just thousands of people looking up at us, says Sun, who admits today that he is still thrilled about the experience. It was one of those moments as a rider that when it's all over, you will always remember. The Quiet Man As DeCoster walked around the now trash-strewn Lomel facility, his mind conjured up a flurry of mixed emotions. His platoon of young American kids had, for all intents and purposes, shook the motocross world at its very foundation. But something was amiss for the man. I was feeling great when we won, but at the same time, there was a little bit of sadness, explains DeCoster. I felt sadness for Vromans, who had rode so well. Andre was a very nice guy, and I had sponsored him through my shop early in his career. What Andre did was forgotten, because the wind just shocked everyone in Europe very badly. These were not the top guys in America. They were a team of young punks, and the Europeans were really surprised for them, or anyone. To beat Belgium. Dave Arnold agrees with many that the day's events forever changed the balance of global motocross power. For years, the press in Europe always thought that they were the best, but that win shocked the status of the world championship and showed how competitive the United States had become, says Arnold. It all changed the way the Euros looked at us. It was like the European press especially the French magazines, turned on the world champions and started looking to the U.S. for the biggest heroes. They knew that these four young upstarts from America had beaten the hell out of the established old world guys. That night, the Crest Hotel threw a huge party for their adopted sons. Flushed with the joy of victory, the team and its supporters blew off the steam that had been collecting for the better part of three weeks. However, for DeCoster... The party was just a small break and a struggle that wasn't over. His mind was already thinking ahead to Germany and the rapidly approaching motocross designations. The next morning, the Americans packed their bags and headed for Bailstein, West Germany, for the following weekend's 500cc race. They were suddenly the darlings of Europe, but they would have to prove themselves away from the sand. Bailstein was an old-fashioned GP motocross circuit to the highest degree. It was a high-speed, rock-strewn affair that had a number of ominous tricks up its old and dusty sleeve. Bailstein had Roger DeCoster concerned. For one thing, O'Mara had never actually competed aboard one of the nasty, growling Honda Works 500s, 
and Hansen, typecast as the 250 specialist, was also a question mark. In practice that week, O'Mara struggled to come to terms with the big red beast, while the other three Yanks were at odds with the slippery and extremely quirky track. I had never ridden a 500 before the motocross designations, laughs O'Mara. In fact, I had very little experience on the 250. Sure, I rode it in the stadiums, but not outdoors. I had no idea about the 500, and the works Honda was just a handful. I was under a lot of pressure to perform there because I was not a 500 rider, and I needed to come up with good moto finishes. Undaunted, everyone in the American camp kept their cool and worked through the adversity. Timed practice illustrated that Hansen had reeled off the quickest lap time, while the Osho had logged the 10th fastest lap. Team USA had a chance again. History Part 2 Under warm and sunny autumn German skies, the Soviet Union's Vladimir Kavanov and Gennady Moisev, Sweden's Haken Karlkist, and the Belgian Everts, Stefan Everts' dad, skated their big 500cc machines through the slippery first turn and banged bars for the whole shot. Sun and Hansen were right there as well. Karlkis soon found his way to the front while Hansen blitzed through the field and into second position. Bailstein was a real fast track that was all hard packed and, at times, we even rode over blacktop, recalls Hansen. I didn't get a great start in the first moto, maybe around 10th, but I started passing riders right away and got up to second. Karlkist was leading, and I was standing to gain some ground on him, but in one of the sections I came out of the trees and it was real choppy, so I kept the throttle pinned, Hansen says. I was going way too fast and went right towards this big embankment. I fell off the back of the bike and ended up halfway up the side of the bank. I got the bike back down, hopped back onto it, and set out after Karlkist. I still finished second. Behind the top American, Laporte had machine gunned through the pack to end up sixth. O'Mara came home a very respectable 11th, while Sun, who had derailed the chain on two occasions, was 20th. When the points were added up, the formidable English team of Graham Noyce, Dave Thorpe, Dave Watson, and Jeff Mays led the American team by one point. A light rain began to fall as the teams began the staging process for the second moto. When the pack rocketed down the start straight this time, it was again Karlkist with the hole shot. The Swede immediately opened up a big lead and disappeared, never again to be contended with. But like Romans' individual win the week before, the honor of winning the race would soon be lost to history in the wake of a bigger picture. The idea that Team USA was going to win again. However, early on, the Americans were struggling. Laporte was in 10th, O'Mara in the teens, and Sun way, way back in the field. A few laps in, Sun had bailed and aggravated his already severely tweaked ankle. As the rain started to fall harder, Laporte, O'Mara, and Hansen kept their heads down, desperate to improve their on-track positions. Then they got a big break when, at the midway mark, Noyce rolled off the track with a DNF. England could have won the race, but Noyce's gearbox shaft broke and he was out, says Jack Burnicle. It was strange because Noyce had not experienced one DNF that 1981 season and had taken Malherbe all the way down to the last moto in the 500cc World Championship Series. Noyce was riding great that day, which was kind of humorous because he had struggled through the qualifying races on Saturday because he had gotten so drunk on Friday night. What helped him, no doubt, is that the English team kept him under lock and key on Saturday night, Bernicle says. The victory was now down to three Americans and three Englishmen, and it was a dogfight. Laporte was cast as the great American hope. After finding a way around David Watson and German Walter Gruller, the Californian set off after Dutchman Gerard Rond, who ran in second place. In the now pouring rain, Laporte reeled him in, and after crossing the asphalt road section of the circuit, 
stole the position away from him. With it, he basically stole the win for Team USA. Supported by the late race charges of O'Mara and Hansen, who had formed a flying wedge around Dave Thorpe, the Americans had won again. Oh man, we were so excited, and it even seemed like some of the Euros were digging it, laughs Hansen today. Our second-rate team had beat their best teams, and we were so excited. You know, in the past, I had heard that the European fans would throw bottles and rocks at the riders, but it was nothing like that with us. Everyone seemed so happy, and during the big trophy presentation under the tent, everyone was getting a little carried away. It was a wonderful experience. Victory And so it was. Four young American riders had, in the span of one week, managed to smash the myth of European superiority and create an entirely new world order. In fact, by using Lommel and Bielstein as a launching pad, Team USA would go on to dominate the motocross designations events for the next 12 consecutive years. Furthermore, the 1981 victories would launch the careers of the Team USA quartet into the stratosphere, but not necessarily with Honda. Laporte's best individual score for the four motos would land him a ride with the Yamaha of Europe factory team, where he would win the 1982 250cc world championship as a GP rookie. Donnie Hansen would return to America to win the 1982 AMA 250cc Supercross and Outdoor National Championships. But upon his return to Europe for that year's version of Team USA, he suffered a tragic career-ending crash, readying himself for the trophy race in Germany. Johnny O'Mara, the youngest member of the team, would ultimately win the 1983 AMA 125 National Championship Series, the 1984 250 AMA Supercross Championship, and ride on Team USA in 1982, 84, and 86, winning each time. Sun's career, however, was in twilight after his Team USA tour of duty, but he already had his national title from 1980. And then there was Roger DeCoster. As he initially predicted, DeCoster utilized the wave of momentum that crested during the fall of 1981 to turn Team Honda into the most powerful motocross team on the planet. For the next decade, alongside the classy Dave Arnold, he would guide Honda riders to countless championships. Through the actions of the aforementioned men, not to mention the selfless industry people who helped bring the whole wonderful saga to fruition, the spark was created to ignite the blazing inferno of American motocross domination of the 1980s and early 90s. But while the Americans, despite a few ups and downs in recent years, still rule the high-revving world of international motocross, it can't be denied that some of the innocence that was displayed that September in 1981 seems lost forever. Winning in 1981 was such a neat thing. I still have the magazine covers from that race on my wall, explains John Gregory. I think that race and representing America meant a lot more back then than it does now. I'm sure if you talk to Danny and Johnny and the guys, they'll tell you how special it was to them. These guys today, when you ask them about going over there to represent Team USA, they're more like, I'm really busy, I've gotta be at the river. Like a lot of things, those are the good old days. Still, to many hardcore enthusiasts, the motocross designations personifies everything great about the sport the best riders in the world coming together on one afternoon to fight for the heart and soul and ways and means of their respective nations. And when Ricky Carmichael, Ezra Lusk, and Doug Henry kick over their bikes and roll out onto the chalky surface of Fox Hill, England on September 27, 1998, they will be the most recent incarnation of a canonized legacy that was first created in 1981. The motocross does nations is still about pride instead of money, and I hope our team this year is able to experience the same feelings that Danny, Chuck, Donnie, and Johnny did in 1981, says Dick Miller proudly. It is a feeling that I'm sure they will never forget. I couldn't have been prouder if they had been my own kids. 
Thank you for listening to this RacerX Read Aloud, brought to you from the RacerX Illustrated Archives. When We Were Kings was written by Eric Johnson and read to you by Brett Smith. Nicholas Smith provided the editing and sound engineering.